0: Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. And this week, we're asking, can the liberal West survive? Across Europe and America, many different sorts of reactionary parties and politicians are tearing at the fabric of the world's post-war liberal settlement. Western liberalism looks to be under threat so will it crumble or could it be saved my guest today is bill emmett he's a former editor in chief of the economist and now inter alia an author on international affairs welcome bill
1: great to be here
0: welcome back bill i should say now bill's latest book is the fate of the west the battle to save the world's most successful political idea so you tackle this question head on Let's start by unpacking whether it is the world's most successful political idea if it's under such assault and so many people are turning against it.
1: Well, I think what's successful about the idea of the West, which I take to be liberalism, the open society, which combines openness with a sense of equality of citizenship and political rights for all the, pe- all the people living in, in any given country, and then networks itself through the alliances that we have, the NATO that uh, Donald Trump has described as uh, potentially obsolete and so forth. That idea has, in my belief, both flaws and strengths. The flaws are, is that, are that it um, can trip itself up. It can make terrible mistakes. And that is the situation we've been in, particularly since the 2008 financial crisis. But it also has a great evolutionary skill and ability to find its way out of trouble in a way that authoritarian systems find much harder.
0: We'll come to those in just a moment. But just to to back up, you were editor-in-chief of The Economist for 13 years. You arrived after the fall of the Berlin Wall, when I was over there covering and you were here putting on the, the, the cover. You departed before the fall of Lehman Brothers. Arguably, those were the years that represented a golden era of that combination that you described openness, free markets, liberal democracy. Did you ever think that it would come under threat?
1: I always thought that liberalism would come under threat because actually freedom, free trade, free markets, free movement of people are surprisingly difficult ideas to convince people of the utility of them for them as individuals. They can believe in them in principle. But then when it comes to your own street, your own job, your own livelihood, it's often much harder. Protection is quite a tempting solution. And The Economist, ever since 1843, has been fighting this battle, sometimes winning it, sometimes doing less well. So I don't think it surprises me now as a former editor.
0: Putting former editors on the spot about 1843 is always treacherous territory. Uh, But is the argument really the same? Do free markets. Is the liberal promise the same the principles that set up The economists in the middle of the 19th century to the kind of situation that we face after 1990, trying to make the liberalism work for so many different countries, bringing together Eastern and Western Europe. And then, of course, that financial crash and everything that lay behind it. It sounds like we're almost trying to apply 19th century recipe to a turbocharged capitalism.
1: Well, I think the reason capitalism has become turbocharged is because the recipe has worked so well. But the recipe requires government to step in and to regulate the way in which markets work. Adam Smith made this point in uh, 1776 in the The Wealth of Nations. Markets need rules, and the problem comes when government steps back too far from the market, or, crucially, and this is what happened, I believe, with the 2008 Lehman shock, when government gets captured by lobby groups, by wealthy groups in banks, Wall Street, the city, who subvert government. And that's one of the flaws of democracy, that it is ultimately potentially for sale unless the rest of us as citizens rise up against the corruption that is thereby inherent in the system.
0: There's no doubt that anti-liberal politics in Europe and the United States and beyond are enjoying something of a a summer, an an interest, a resurgence. We have Prime Minister like Viktor Orban in Hungary talking about an illiberal democracy as a a good thing, something you aspire to, the word illiberal being elevated there. What's wrong with that proposition?
1: I think what's wrong with his proposition to a Hungarian should be the balance between the selfish interest of Mr. Orban personally and his group around him and the long-term interests of the country as a whole. Now, if you look at successful development stories, South Korea, for example, going far away from from Hungary, of course, it was run by a dictator for many, many, many years. It only became a democracy in the 1980s. Illiberal practices got South Korea where it was. So if I was a Hungarian, I'd listen to Mr. Orban and wonder... Was he working for me or is he working for him? But Uh, I I suppose
0: uh, he, like other populists, are betting on the fact and and magnifying the idea that the public don't really agree with elites anyway, that the illiberal elites, be they in the form of The Economist or an institution like the, the EU or largely academia, has lost touch with them, doesn't really reflect their interests. And therefore, you can go off and sell illiberalism just as confidently as you could sell liberalism. How do you respond to that?
1: Well, I think the public are interested in results. They're interested in their living standards. They're interested in their security. They're interested in the opportunities for their children. They're not interested in the political debate. And indeed, the whole point about representative government is that it's done by specialists, by elites, to avoid ordinary people having to worry about it and to think about it. That's really the principle. But that means that at times, the elites who are doing the representation can lose touch with the uh, pain and anger and loss of hope of some of the people. And uh, that really is what's happened since the 2008 crash.
0: So let's put liberalism on the spot. How can it adapt and evolve? And your book is very much about pointing to how liberalism might cope with these strains rather than just explaining the 2007-8 crash. And it would be fair to say that there's a groaning bookshelf of books that already do that. They don't all agree, but there is something of a consensus around that loss of control of what markets were doing. Where does that point you now in terms of how liberalism should adapt?
1: Well, I think that what liberal governments, what liberal parties need to do is to find new ways to provide a sense of equality. For citizens. And I think it's been neglected. It's been given lip service by too many Liberal governments who have thought, well, rapid economic growth will just um, somehow bail us out and make everyone mildly happy enough to elect us the next time. And that just hasn't worked in the last 10 years.
0: I wonder, though, I'm going to be a bit cheeky and say I think that's a bit of a boilerplate, because it it ends up with a sort of a redistribution argument, but it's not particularly precise. And if we actually look at the way the governments have, take the UK government, for instance, has redistributed heavily towards the bottom end of the income scale, possibly because they got rather spooked by 2007-8. It doesn't automatically mean that people then start to adjust back in a direction of accepting more liberalism, they maybe still feel their discontents, they maybe just feel it's their due. How does it necessarily solve your liberalism issue?
1: Well, I think that what matters is results. And the fact is that in Britain, the the, the example you cite among the rather large number in the world is a country where real incomes for ordinary people have declined steadily over 10 years, that actually this so-called redistribution that you claim has happened hasn't actually made a difference as far as most people at the bottom end of the scale are concerned, except recently those on the minimum wage. And I do think that George Osborne's initiative to sharply raise the minimum wage is exactly in the right direction is in our he current now circumstances. The now former Chancellor did the right thing, and I believe that more governments need to do that. So it is boilerplate because the circumstances differ in different countries. But the basic question is what are the results for people and how much does a government care about that?
0: And who's getting it more right than wrong to your mind? I know that you travel widely preparing this book and and others that you do. You use a lot of very broad international comparisons. Maybe we're being narrow. Where else should we look?
1: I think we have to look in Scandinavia, which also happens to be where uh, Emmanuel Macron is also looking, because where they have successfully developed liberalism over the past 20 years is in providing openness, liberating labor markets, providing the room for change, while also providing enough security to uh, workers and to people to uh, preserve a sense of equality. And it's in that balance between security and openness, flexibility, that... The future has to, be, has to lie.
0: Immigration and globalisation, very much central to the anti-liberal cause. What do you think policymakers have got wrong on immigration, if anything? Open borders sounds like such a great promise, and the economists that you inherited after the fall of the Berlin Wall stood for it. It seemed to be the, what would really drive European prosperity in the next, next decades. Perhaps it did, but faltering now.
1: Really, the political agitation about immigration is first and foremost about economic suffering and about anger about the 2008 recession and the difficulties that people have faced, which it's tempting to find um, all sorts of scapegoats for. Secondly, it is about cultural issues with immigration, which is primarily about immigration from non-European countries, i.e. African and uh, other non-Christian and non-white immigration. I think that governments need to devote a lot more resources to um, helping integrate and deal with many of the issues that cultural clashes in immigration produce. But this is not a new issue. When we were worrying about race riots in Brixton and Toxteth in the 1980s, uh, when we were young journalists, it was exactly the same issue. A mixture of, of economic suffering, which is immigration is not the, the problem, but it's part of the symptom and cultural issues, which is similar to the, the, the race problems we've had in the past.
0: How similar then is Donald Trump's America to the kind of situations that you have laid out? Obviously, there are national differences. There are things that some people worry about more than others. And there is, there is history. There's how countries came together and their past experience that informs their debate. And yet it's striking that there are so many at least similar apparently similar phenomenon, or is Donald Trump an outlier?
1: I think that America is always an outlier because it is a massive continental society, a massive continental economy, which always has the capacity to look inwards because it's big enough to look inwards. That's not in its interest to look inwards at all times. And we at The Economist, if I may still use the word we, absolutely have always tried to persuade America not to look inwards. But the temptation is there much more than it is in Britain or in smaller countries.
0: How would you go about attacking the Donald Trump proposition if you were living in America now?
1: Well, I think that if I were living in America now, I would be trying to say that Donald Trump's right about many of the problems. He rode a wave of genuine grievances, genuine anxieties, genuine uh, anger that need to be addressed. The question is whether his solutions are actually in America's interest and are going to work in dealing with those anxieties. So I would be addressing the gap between his correctly identified problems and his uh, often inadequate or hypocritical or misplaced solutions. Secondly, I think that he is the type of person who, in a democracy which has fewer checks and balances and protections than America, would be challenging the very foundations of of the democracy and of democratic institutions because he would feel it an irksome restraint upon him.
0: So you don't believe that he's a Democrat with a small d?
1: I liken Donald Trump to Silvio Berlusconi, who I covered a lot uh, in Italy and The Economist under my editorship took on um, in a big way. Silvio Berlusconi was elected by a democratic process, but he came from a business background, didn't take kindly to being told what to do, didn't like judges who found him guilty of things or indeed even tried to investigate things, didn't like the constraints that were on him, and I believe Donald Trump is the same. But the American democratic system is much stronger. So the the constraints on Donald Trump are much stronger. And if I was living in America, I'd be working to make sure that they remain strong.
0: One thing that might have changed a, a bit since you were running your very critical uh, covers there on on Silvio Berlusconi is that we're now in the age of the filter bubble. The confirmation bias, which everybody has, can not simply be magnified. We can live with it uh, and magnified as much as we like. There's fake news. There is news that uh, thinks it's real, but is a bit fake. And there is news put out there determined to be fake. Can liberal ideas really push through this cacophony of noise?
1: Liberal ideas had better push through this cacophony of noise. We depend upon them doing so, and I continue to have faith that they can. Uh, I believe, of course, that there are changes in the uh, way in which ideas are discussed, the way in which they're received, but that fundamentally the issues are the same. And we have to master the new channels, the new ways in which people are discussing things, and simply win by the quality of our ideas, and particularly by the force of example, in other words, the results.
0: But policymakers seem to be divided between those who think that it's really about tweaks. We've mentioned redistribution. Different countries might go that differently. Some might constrain immigration more than others. But other things that we're going to have to think about and enact that we really, as liberals, would prefer not to have to do?
1: I think that one of the most difficult things is going to be dealing with this at a time when societies are both ageing and automating taking on artificial intelligence, robots, so forth, which make people even more scared about, about their futures. And at the time when China is rising in the world and China's position is rising, a very illiberal, a successful authoritarian country. And I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges that, that, that Western countries face, that the world is not now dominated by liberal countries in the way that it has been until the 1990s and beyond and we have to do transactions deals and make arrangements with countries that we would rather not
0: can't resist asking you build you fancy coming in and doing a few page proofs while we're while you're back in the building
1: it's always tempting to correct punctuation at the economist
0: <laughs> Bill Emmett, our former editor and author thank you very much
1: great to be back
0: and that's it for this Thursday's The Economist Asks. And if you've been following the news over the past few days, you'll know that President Donald Trump has decided to fire his FBI director, James Comey. Do download tomorrow's episode of The Week Ahead to hear The Economist dig deeper into what it means and what we make of what happens next. Also, if you've any thoughts on today's programme, get in touch with us. We're at Economist Radio on Twitter, and you can send emails to radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.
1: Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today.